Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You are listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. A very pleasant good evening. Thanks for taking the time out to join us here on That's Truth. We do trust that you will be able to remain tuned with us for the entire program tonight. And I do trust that the program will be a source of blessing and spiritual enlightenment to you. Pastor Murphy is here and he is ready to answer your question. And we are going to continue on the topic, same-sex marriage and marriage. And we have some questions from last week. So we are going to try to answer some of those questions and then we'll continue our discussion on marriage. Pastor Murphy, pleasant good evening to you. Thank you, my brother. Good to be here again this evening. And we have a question here from last week, Pastor Murphy. Let me read a question for you. Should we as Christians dislike a homosexual or should we win them to Christ by showing love to them? The Christian should really love everybody. I think that's a given. Um, as far as dislike um, a homosexual, I think there's a natural repulsion that a person feels uh, towards homosexual behavior because it is unnatural. Uh, it is a, a form of sexual perversion. Uh, the mannerisms of a homosexual uh, clearly are offensive to any person who has any concept of what a male is. So I think there is a natural inclination to have an, uh, an aversion towards uh, a homosexual. Howbeit, I think that we need to get over that aversion, and I think it's our responsibility to reach all men, including the homosexual. The homosexual is not uh, a person who is so imprisoned he cannot be liberated or set free. Uh, any sin that dominates a person's life, any habit, um, that has be- taken control, basically, and began to uh, dominate life, a life-dominating sin, that can be broken. Uh, the power of Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, the purifying work of the Word of God, uh, those are the main tools of transformation. Uh, remember that when a person gets saved, uh, it goes beyond just saying a prayer, and uh, believing a truth. It involves a great transaction. The person becomes a new creature in Christ. The implanted nature of God is placed in that person. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell, and that Holy Spirit does his sanctifying work of transforming that person's life. So uh, my response to that question is, it is difficult not to have some some um, Ill, Ill, Ill feelings towards homosexuals and homosexual behavior, mainly because it's an aberrant lifestyle and it's so contrary to Scripture. But it is our responsibility, uh, just like we would despise a, pedif- uh, a person who commits 
uh, a pedophile or how we would despise a, a, a serial murderer. Uh, I'm not trying to equate homosexuality with these these uh, forms of, of, of sins, but I am saying that our responsibility as Christians is to reach all men, and the homosexual needs to be reached as well. Uh, so we need to show love, but we must not give affirmation and authenticity to that lifestyle because it is contrary to Scripture. I can accept you f- for who you are without authenticating what you're doing and affirming that what you're doing is right. And when I say accept you, I mean as a person who has uh, made it the image of God, who has value, uh, who has dignity. That's what I mean. But we as Christians must never ever come to the point in our lives or in the church where we accept homosexuality as normal. To do that would be going completely contrary to biblical truth, and in my judgment, is giving God a slap in the face who has created us male and female. We do not help the homosexual by, in any way, capitulating to his activism. We maintain the biblical position, and uh, we try to rescue them. We don't go into the hole to rescue a man who has dropped into the hole. We, we stay above, and we let down the rope, and we pull him out. But I do feel that we need to let uh, people know that we don't want ill will for the homosexual. We don't think he should be mistreated in any way. And we ought to show love to all men, including the homosexual. Thank you so very much, Pastor Murphy. Yes, it's, God said he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so as Christians, we have the responsibility to share the gospel to everyone. That's correct. Okay, we are going to continue as we... Uh, discussing the topic tonight, marriage and same-sex marriage, and we've been doing so for the past two weeks. And so, Pastor Murphy, we've asked this question again, but I don't think we have gotten fully into it. What is marriage? Uh, We started uh, some level of discussion last session, um, trying to define marriage and set up the parameters that God gives in relation to marriage. Uh, because I think at the very heart of this matter of same-sex marriage or any other form of marriage that is aberrant, uh, we have to establish and define marriage. Once we can define marriage, once we can define marriage, then we can uh, know whether or not a, a marriage is legal or right or moral by our definition. The problem today is that we are confused about what really marriage is. So the only thing, the only way to deal with that problem from a biblical perspective and a Christian. Uh, worldview, is that we need to go back to Scripture to find out what was God's intent. I cannot emphasize too much that we are living in a fallen world, uh, a broken world. We are broken in, in every dimension, including sexually broken. And the only way to fix this matter and understand how to deal with it is to have a comprehensive understanding of what was God's intent. Uh, what we have is not what God intended. But what we need to do as Christians is to move back in that direction. What was God's intent for marriage? Uh, and from a biblical perspective, there are several uh, marks uh, or elements that constitute what marriage is. And I just want to remind the audience again of what we said last week, and then we'll pick up where we left off. I, I mentioned that marriage involves a covenant. Um, that is inferred in Genesis chapter 2, but is explicitly stated in other parts of Scripture. Uh, for example, in Proverbs two, eleven and, uh, and 17, uh, it talks about, uh, warns Israel about um, adultery and about um, divorce. And then in Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, it talks about that as well. 
in Proverbs 2.17, it talks about uh, forgotten the covenant of her God. That refers to the adulterer who entraps another person uh, to get involved in some kind of a sexual ecstasy with a person. And uh, the book of Proverbs warned that person, you've forgotten the covenant that you've made with God. So clearly there's a covenant relationship there. Uh, a person who commits adultery is a person who's married. And the book of Proverbs is warning that person who goes ahead and commits adultery that the greatest offense that they're making is that they're offending God by violating the vow that they made and the covenant that was made. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 14, uh, God rebukes Israel for the lackadaisical attitude towards divorce. And the prophet says in that passage that... um, the wife who is divorced, that she is your companion, the wife of your of your covenant. So clearly, there's a covenant involved uh, in marriage. Now, people see a marriage as a contract. A marriage is more than a contract. It's a covenant. Two different, different things altogether. A, a covenant brings you, uh, you have mutual obligations. Long life, uh, faithfulness. You've got gender roles to play within uh, the marriage. It not only has mutual obligation, but it in- involves promises of blessings and, and, and fulfillment. That's where companionship comes in and where sexual union comes in and where children becomes a product of the, the marriage. And then, of course, uh, a covenant not only has obligations and it only has promises of blessing, but it also has consequences when you break up. And uh, no person who divorces and divorces without being torn apart. Uh, The psychological damage, the spiritual damage, the social damage that is done to society itself, the damage done to children is astronomical. Uh, And that's part of the consequences of breaking. And of course, you incur God's anger and God's wrath when we go in that direction. So marriage is a covenant. But this covenant uh, is not a covenant between two people, a husband and a wife. It's a covenant that brings in a third party who happens to be God. That's why in Malachi it talks about she is the companion, the wife of by the covenant, and Proverbs talks about you've forgotten the covenant of your God. There is a third party involved in every marriage, and there's a vertical dimension to marriage, not just a horizontal dimension. And this is why it's so important that when a person is conducting a marriage, a pastor or whoever, that the emphasis in the ceremony brings to to bear the reality of the vows that they're making before God, so that the couple will understand that they'll be they're held accountable to God and will give an account. Remember what Matthew 19 says, what God has joined together, let no man pull asunder. It's not just a human relationship. There's a a, a vertical dimension, a supernatural dimension to this matter. So marriage is not just a covenant, but it's a covenant that involves a third party, that third party is God. Then another thing about marriage in the scriptures is that marriage is monogamous. Uh, You remember that when our Lord was asked a question about divorce, he went back to creation and said it was not so from the beginning. It's in Genesis we understand that God intended to be one man and one woman. Well, some people say, Pastor, about this polygamy in the Old Testament. I agree with that. But I want to say to you that when you see things in the Bible, they are not all prescriptive. They're just, some of them are descriptive. Everything you see in the Bible doesn't mean that God approves of it. God records it. What God does in the Bible is mitigate uh, and control the anomalies that man has brought in, which he did not intend. Uh, So he controlled polygamy. But it doesn't mean that he endorsed it or he approved it. I mean, it's very, very clear about this matter. From God's original intent, we see that when Adam needed a companion, God created one companion. And that is very, very significant. And after God had done that, he said it was very good. So this is God's design. This is God's purpose. We need to understand that marriage is intended to be a monogamous marriage between a man and a woman. 
And any deviation from that is contrary to God's mind and contrary to God's will. And will incur God's anger and his wrath and will be held accountable when we deviate from that. The third thing about marriage is that marriage is heterosexual. That is, it's male and a female. When God was creating a, a help meet for Adam, he created a woman. Because only a woman can meet the needs of a man. Only a woman can be joined to a man as one flesh. Uh, only a woman is a suitable companion for a man and vice versa. So any deviation from that, same-sex marriage, that's why we can't support it. We'll never support it. The Bible will never endorse that. And any pastor that endorses it, in my judgment, he ought to be removed from his office as a pastor. Pastor, He ought to be defrocked. He should not be a pastor. That is a clear violation of a biblical principle. So it is heterosexual, male and female. There is no such thing as marriage between any two same-sex people. Now, government may endorse it, and it may be legal, but to legalize something doesn't mean that you moralize it, okay? And you can't, you can't by legalizing something, uh, somehow sanitize it. It is still wrong whether it's legal or not. And the church should never approve, uh, never perform same-sex marriage, and never in any way endorse it. And then another mark of marriage is the concept of sexual oneness. Sexual intimacy is an essential part of marriage. Because from the very beginning of creation, God intended that through sexual intimacy, children would be a product of the marriage. So if a person gets married and the person doesn't want to be engaged in sexual activity, that, that breaks the marriage vow. That, that completely breaks the marriage vow. And uh, I've known of situations like that. And um, it is very, very unfortunate that these things happen. But we, we need to, 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 to remember, remember very clearly that this is part. If a woman doesn't enjoy sexual activity and she doesn't want to engage in sex, she should not get married. She's not designed to be married. The same thing for men. Uh, so that's another reason that is given for marriage. And then another principle of marriage is that it is a permanent relationship. We, we need to understand that God said, what God have joined together, let no man pull asunder. So it's a, a given that it is God's intent that a marriage be, be permanent. If we had time to go into verses like Romans chapter 7 and 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you will see very clearly that uh, Paul makes it clear that a man is joined to woman so long as the partners are alive, but when one is dead, the other one is free to marry. So clearly it's God's intent that this relationship be, be permanent, and I think everybody who embraces the Christian faith would understand that's God's design. So that should always be the aim. There are only two biblical grounds for divorce in the Bible, and that is adultery, and that is abandonment. Uh, that's another discussion in itself. But that does not mean because a person has committed adultery or a person has abandoned a person that you automatically should proceed for divorce. We must always try to bring about healing and always try to bring the couple back together. But there are cases where it is virtually impossible for that to happen, and that person will have to make a decision. But only the innocent party in a divorce has the right to remarry. The other thing about marriage, not only is it permanent, but ordinarily it's a public covenant. And what I mean by that is marriage is not merely for a private arrangement between two people who go off somewhere secretly and uh, have a, you know, uh, whatever. Uh, marriage is involves a community, and biblical marriage covenants were made in public view. If you look at Ruth ch chapter 4 
uh, in the connection with Boaz and Ruth, you see it was something that was done at the gate of the city. There are other uh, indications of this in the Bible as well. Genesis chapter 29, verse 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 2. Uh, John chapter 2, verse 1. And Revelation 19, 7. All of these marriage celebrations that are done publicly. And the reason for that is that the witnesses are there to witness to the covenant promises that are being made. They're not just mere spectators. They're there to help the whole, the, the couple to the covenant arrangement that they've made and the promises that they've made. And it is uh, good and healthy for society and the well-being of the family that this thing is done publicly uh, in, in the eyes of society. So those are just seven basic fundamental marks of what constitutes uh, marriage from the biblical perspective. I have a question here from a listener in the British Virgin Islands. A WhatsApp message. It states... If a person divorce for a reason other than adultery, as the Bible stated, and marry someone else, are they continuously living in adultery, as some says? Can you tell me what the Bible says about this? That is a very ticklish question, and uh, one that I will give you my opinion on it. Uh, I might need to do a little bit more research. And I'll probably come back at it uh, at some other time to give it more detail. What I would say is that if a person marries, uh, remarries, uh, who was not um, divorced biblically, clearly that initial act of remarriage is an act of adultery. But my question, the what, where I have my issue here is adultery, is adultery an un, the unpardonable sin? There's only one unpardonable sin. I think when a person has made that move, it's an act of adultery, but I think the person needs to see it for what it is. I think they need to ask God's forgiveness on, on that matter. If it is wrong, something needs to be done about it. There are those who believe that if they continue to live in that way, they're living in adultery and therefore uh, they're a con- continuous adulterous life. Uh, I am not too sure personally where I stand on that right at this point in time. And I'll be very honest with you. <clears throat> um, there are people who have made decisions like that and then later on um, got saved and realized it was a wrong decision. What do we tell them now? Do we tell them that they should now divorce? I am, I am not keen on suggesting that. What I would say is that if that has happened, uh, see it for what it is, ask God's forgiveness and move on with your life. But uh, to, to, uh, to now break up, I am not too sure that I would advise that for a person. However, let me just say this. Your conscience should always guide you in these matters. I know we like to hear what pastors have to say and what people have to say. It's fine and dandy. It is wisdom and counsel. But ultimately, this is a matter between you and God. See it that way. If your conscience bothers you that this is wrong, God is greater than your conscience. And uh, if you do something that's not in faith, the Bible says it is sin. So I think let this be a personal matter between you and the Lord and seek his mind on this matter. I will come back to this matter another time. I might promise you that. I will I will do my own thinking, my own praying. I'll do some research on it to see what are the different views, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because I myself, uh, I'm not fully settled on that as yet. Um, I, I know what the Bible says on that matter. Uh, and I am inclined to believe that once it is sin, it should be remedied. 
uh, and so that the people should do something about it and should not continue in that matter. But let me just not be the one that is so bold and daring to, to, to give that advice to you and then um, I, I change my mind afterwards. I would prefer to get this thing settled as far as I am concerned. I would say this, that a divorced person would be limited in what they should be able to do in the church. The church has to be, the church is the only f- last redeeming feature on planet Earth. It's the pillar and ground of truth. It's the only way to halt this moral decline that is going on on the global scale. We'll take a lot of licks for it, but that's what the church is there for, to represent God. And I think by lowering our standards to accommodate people who are divorced because they're talented or they got funding or they're intellectuals or they've been to university or they've got certain skills that we need, I think we make a massive mistake in trying to um, accommodate people in here. For example, I sincerely don't believe a, a deacon should be a divorced person. A pastor certainly should not be a divorced person. But when we break down those moral parameters that God has set, the church's moral authority is lost. And I think that's the damage that is done to the church in the long term. It might seem a short-term solution because that's the way the world is going. But eventually it turns on us. And then when we want to speak on moral issues, the church throws it back at us. And that is where the church loses its moral authority. So I do feel that people who are divorced, there are certain things that no, a divorced person uh, can, can teach a Sunday school class. Uh, a divorced person who has gotten his heart right with God can preach a message. He, but he cannot be a pastor, and he certainly should not be a deacon or elder. I think we have to have the most outstanding, morally right people in in the congregation being in that capacity. Remember that every biblical qualification that is given for a pastor and a deacon are moral qualifications. They're not intellectual qualifications. But today, we are so so sold on on education that we have pretty much made that the standard. And if it's not education, it's a person's financial standing because they're good tithers or they they, they can help the church build build, help the church. And so we, 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 we go beyond the biblical standards. And I think that's a mistake. I hope I've been a little bit helpful to you, but I'll come back to that question, I promise you, at another time. Pastor Murphy, concerning that latter part of the question there that you were answering, isn't we as human, we categorize sin? For instance, a person's sin, and maybe he or she is in a church and is being disciplined, mm-hmm. right? And after time, she's accepted back into fellowship in the church. Mm-hmm. We know we allowed that um, maybe a lay person to be back in the church and they can function. Why then should, because it's a sexual sin, a deacon cannot continue to participate in a deacon position in the church? Well, let me put it this way. Um, I connect two verses in the Bible and uh, there's a link between them. There's a book, the word, I forgot the chapter in, in Proverbs, but the, the listening audience could check it out. It says, the reproach of the adulterer shall never be taken away. Never be taken away. But the Bible says, the deacon and the pastor should be beyond reproach. So if the approach, the reproach of the adulterer shall never be taken away, how is he going to, how is he going to be beyond reproach? So when you take those two verses together, clearly adultery puts a person in a position where his leadership role in the church um, is is virtually. I'm talking about as a pastor. I'm talking about as a deacon. 
I'm not talking about being a missions committee or being uh, helping with the youth leader, that, that kind of thing. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about the very center of the leadership of the church, which is the core, the pastor, the deacons, and some churches got the elders. We need the best characters, moral character and spiritual characters, to be part of the leadership of the church. We need to set the model and the standard. We, we need the highest standard. We, we don't help the church by lowering the standard. I, I keep emphasizing that. So it's not a question that because of sexual sin. For example, a person who's embezzled funds at a bank or where they're working, and it's become publicly known that they've embezzled funds. Can you imagine them being the treasure of a church? Now, God may forgive. There's no question about that, that God forgives. But we still have to not only see that justice is done, it has to be seen to be done. And it'd be very precarious to put a person who's embezzled funds from a bank to be the treasure of a church. I mean, you're putting the person in the very area of temptation. So we have to use our judgment and our wisdom. It's not a question that God doesn't forgive and et cetera, et cetera. But there are certain things that we can do in our lives and certain sins we could commit that puts us out of the pale of leadership in an institution and especially the church. And we ought to, you know, we ought to be reasonable enough to understand why people uh, wouldn't trust us. Let me use an example. Take adultery. A man commits adultery. And then he is found out, and he comes to his wife and says, Honey, I'm sorry. He is the most unreasonable person. Because he has confessed his sin and asked God to forgive him, he now expects his wife to treat him as normal. That doesn't happen. That's not human nature. It takes as much as... If a man been adultery 10 years, it takes 10 years to rebuild trust. That is a psychological fact of those who have done the research. If a man has been an adult for two years, it takes at least two years to rebuild trust. So he has to win her trust back. He, she, he just can't say, well, you know, I, I've forgiven, and that's the end of the story. He has to rebuild trust in his wife and in his family. It's not just going to happen automatically. What I would say is, seem to me, most of the time, we are much more severe on people when it comes to sexual sin than all the other myriads of sin that human commits. Again, I, I'm not going to debate that, but again, it's because of the scandal of sexual sin. There are other sins that people collect, co- co- commit that people don't know, so we can't deal with it. But generally speaking, when a person been involved in some kind of a sexual sin, it becomes public. It, it not only tarnishes that person's reputation, but it actually tarnishes the whole church reputation. I've had people tell me, for example, uh, what church you pastor? And I would say to them, they say, but I can't come to that church. And then they ask them why you can't come to the church. And then they will tell me about certain things that, that they know. And I'm, I'm, I'm appalled, to be honest with you. But what has happened is that they expect the church to be what God wants it to be, a pure church, a holy church, a church that does not tolerate evil and practice immorality. That's what they want. They don't want to come into a setting where what they had outside in the world they now find in the church. So it has a tremendous effect upon the church. I think that is perhaps one of the reasons why. And then it's a matter of interpersonal relationships. Generally speaking, a person who has committed adultery, uh, the chances are that will probably happen again. It's a weakness that is there, and you want to guard the people within the church setting from being placed in a position where uh, they can be taken advantage of. Okay, Pastor Murphy, we are really um, touching some serious um, issues tonight. We have a WhatsApp message here. Let me see if I could get this one clearly. It said, My husband tried to sexually molest my daughter. He went as far as touching her in the middle of the night when I was sleeping. I did not divorce him 
because I was ashamed to know that my marriage would be broken up. I stayed and he ended up divorcing me for another woman. Was the marriage broken initially because of the incident with my daughter? That's the question? Yes, Pastor. Well, I am not too sure um, what what um, happened there. I, I, clearly, there's an, a sexual act that was done. Um, not not The act wasn't fully carried out, but there were movements towards that sexual act in terms of molesting your daughter. Now, I don't know if you're saying that as a result of that, you separated from him and that broke up the marriage. I'm not too sure that's where you're coming from. Is he separate? She did not. Oh, if he's separate. No, I, look, madam, you have... You not you should not feel guilty about defending your child and for allowing any man I don't care if it's be her her, her her son I mean her her dad her stepdad that doesn't matter your right as a mother is to protect your daughter no man has any right interfering with his daughter sexually as a matter of fact I hope it comes to in Antigua I know it's in America these cases have to be reported in America even me as a pastor. If I were ministering in, in in America and a gentleman came to me or a wife came to me and told me about uh, abuse going on in the family, I am obligated under American law. I cannot hide behind my client relationship or my, my, my spiritual with the person in the church. It's, le- it's, it, it's illegal in America to know about sexual abuse of a minor and not report it. I could be put in jail for that. Now, I'm not too sure that is required in Antigua. But if your husband interfered with your daughter and tried to uh, make sexual advances towards her, you have every right to confront him on the matter, and you had every right to try to protect this thing from happening again. Because if he has done it and he's moving it, chances are if you didn't salvage your daughter there, she probably would have been, he would have taken advantage of your daughter. So you did the right thing in that connection. Now, if that created some disharmony between you and your husband, it's inevitable it would create disharmony. If he is not prepared to own up to his evil and his sin and ask God forgiveness, and he decides because you are angry about that, you wouldn't allow it, and he goes off and divorce you, Madam, so be it. Paul said if he want to go, let him go. You, as the innocent party, should not be now caged in and boxed in that you don't have any freedom and liberty to remarry. Uh, that cannot be just by any means. And that's where this, and, and now that he's gone off with another woman, that's adultery. So you even have more biblical grounds uh, for, for, for uh, divorce. But I would not, uh, if I were you, I would not be under the burden of guilt that he went off and because uh, you, 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 you put some control and you, you, you defended and protected your daughter. You did the right thing, madam. That's what you, as a, a and I wish more wise to do what you did. Because it's far more common than people pretend it to be. Uh, it's just that uh, people in the Caribbean, we are so hush-hush. Uh, Americans are more vociferous and they're more public in dealing with these matters. But believe you me, the, the level of, of abuse that is going on and, and interference with, with, with people, I think it's one out of every four women that are in the homes have experienced some kind of abuse. With men, I think it's one in every five. This world is sexually broken. Sexually broken. And uh, you did the right thing, madam. I can't, I can't fault you in doing that. It's unfortunate that he uh, had a wife. It's fortunate that he had a wife who would confront him. But it's unfortunate that he responded in the wrong way. So don't carry any guilt about this thing, madam. Pastor Murphy, she ended the question by asking, was the marriage broken initially 
because of the incident with my daughter. Well, there was no sexual act. I yes, mean, but there was Jesus said, if you look on a woman, you already commit adultery with her in your heart. Um, look, I am talking about, I don't think that you could actually, uh, I wouldn't use that to say that the marriage was broken. Broken in what sense? That it was the, the one, there was no oneness going on there. Uh, there was no sexual oneness going on there. So it was not as though the, the sexual oneness was destroyed because a third party was involved or he was involved with your daughter sexually. So, now, if he was involved with her sexually, that's a different story altogether. But you nip the problem in the bud. Uh, there's no doubt that the marriage was um, virtually in trouble after this thing happened because how can a mother ever conceive that her uh, his, his her, her husband would interfere with her daughter. I mean, this is brokenness, real brokenness. So I think that you would have had some real difficulty relating to him after this act had happened. But I, I would say this, <clears throat> if he had humbled himself and come to some level of admission that what he did was inappropriate and was wrong and was willing to get counseling and help in this particular area, and you were prepared to work with him in the process to bring about healing and restoration, I think that would have been the better model to go. But your anger and your antipathy and your animosity towards him and maybe even your malice towards him as a result of that, as a mother, I don't think you could help feeling that way uh, because this is the most brutal act of betrayal for a man to actually want to sleep with his daughter. That really uh, creates a whole Pandora box of worms uh, and it's very difficult for any woman to be able to. But what I would have suggested to you if you found it, felt the marriage was irretrievably broken at the time was to biblically go to a point of separation. Uh, that's an option. Seek the Lord's will in this matter. And again, I cannot emphasize too much. I will say this again and again on the radio. There are no popes that are infallible. There are no pastors that are infallible. The only thing that is infallible is God's Word. And what matters most when you're dealing with issues has to do with your standing before God and your conscience before God in relation to His Word. Let God's Word guide your conscience. And if your conscience bothers you about something, uh, there's something wrong because God is greater than your conscience. That should be one of the controlling elements to help you decide on a moral decision in that matter. But um, it has happened. I would say to you, move on with your life. That's a, such a, a, a unfortunate situation. But again, that talks about the, the, the sexual brokenness that we have in this world and the evil that the fall has brought into, into, into the human heart. And, uh, but I thank you. I, am very, I, I commend you as a, as a wife to take a stand to protect your daughter. And uh, I think you did the right thing. Uh, and I tell you, just move on with your life at this point. He's gone. Uh, if you feel that you did something wrong, there's only one thing to do, madam. Get before God. Get this burden lifted off to you once and forever. These, Listen, there's only one unpardonable sin, blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Everything else can be forgiven. So if you're burdened and you felt that you're partly responsible for whatever, deal with that before God. Come clean with the Lord in that matter. And once again, you will have your joy restored. You have your spirit renewed. And uh, your life will be lifted in that regard. Thanks, Pastor Murphy. I have another WhatsApp message here. It's a very interesting question. A couple got married and they want to have children. The wife cannot make children. How can they settle a situation like that? Adopt a newborn baby, get a woman pregnant? 
Look, marriage should have children. Uh, normally, would have children. That's one of the designs of marriage. And I think when people go into marriage, I think um, it would be the very uh, most selfish, self-centered person to want to go into marriage, and all they're concerned about sex without any concern for uh, producing a child. Remember that marriage is not just about the individuals meeting their own uh, needs. Marriage entails society. It's about the future, about the next generation. It's not just about the individual uh, and the couple. There's a dimension to marriage that looks beyond the couple to the wider scope of society and the community. Now, the, if a person cannot have children for whatever reason, okay, is there a malfunction in the ovaries, the fallopian tube? Is there the sperm conquer the husband? Is it um, deficient, so therefore they can't get pregnant? My recommendation would be, um, if it is possible, that his sperms can be implanted and they can be um, a child produced that way, I, I, I would endorse that. Let me tell you why I would endorse that. We must always go back to what was God's intent. God's intent is for marriage to have a tru- marriage to have a tr- have children. So here's a situation where people are married but they can't have a children have, have children. But man and his knowledge and God has told man to uh, subdue the earth. God has told man as a steward to you know explore. Nothing wrong with man exploring, and man has used his wisdom, etc. And he's now come up with a way that um, a woman or a man who cannot have a child can legal, can have a child through through a process using the sperm and the over and the over from the mother. I would I would endorse uh, going through some kind of uh, where the doctor can make that implantation through the the the, the father's sperm, etc., etc. However, I am against the idea that you can take a sperm from a sperm bank that belonged to somebody else and implant it in your wound and produce a child. I would never endorse that. The reproductive technology has reached a stage of uh, where almost anything is possible today. And there are limits. There should be medical ethics and there are limits to what should be allowable and what should not be allowable. Clearly, that is not God's design. The design is that the mama, the mom, and the father produce a child, not a surrogate sperm from some other person that does not has nothing to do with the marriage. So I can never endorse that. The other option would be uh, uh, adoption. There's so many kids who need a good home and a good family. Look, I am in my 60s. My wife is going close to her late 60s. We are actually contemplating the possibility of even adopting a child at this age. Uh, and I think that you give a child a home who needs a family, it adds so much to the the ambience of the of the and the setting of the home, the whole atmosphere, the ethos of the home. Uh, and I would suggest that 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 would be the course. Um, if it cannot be that the the ova and the sperm from the couple is used to produce a child, uh, if that's not an option, the other option should be. Uh, adoption, but the idea of using somebody else's sperm or somebody else's over, or using somebody else's womb to do it, uh, madam, I can never endorse that bit because I do not see God's intent. Again, what helps me as a believer, and I hope a Christian mindset and a Christian philosophy of life, uh, our, our worldview is that we must always find out what did God really intended, and because we are in a broken world, 
And we've got to get back to what was God's intent. That's why we had to go back to Genesis to find out what God's intent was. And it was his intent was for a man and a woman to have a child. So whatever can happen to make that man and a woman have a child that is within the, the, within the medical profession. But to bring another sperm or over from some other um, um, human, uh, I could never endorse that. And we should never forget the power of prayer. Correct, correct. Interesting point there because uh, there are people, I know of a, uh, I have a pastor friend who is now in Barbados. I think uh, his wife had her last baby when she was 45, uh, late 40s. Uh, a tremendous blessing in that regard. Um, so I agree with you. Um, God shuts up the womb and God opens up the womb. Uh, there are examples in the Bible, Hannah, for example, uh, who wanted a son for years and she kept praying to the Lord and finally she got a breakthrough and the Lord gave her a child. But it is also, uh, uh, must be understood that there are times when God doesn't give a couple children. Now, we don't know why this happens. Sometimes it's physical. And by the way, could I add something here? That's why before you go into a marriage, you should take certain physical exams to see, uh, for example, take people who've got sickle cell. If you have a trace of sickle cell and your partners have a sickle cell, your child is going to have a full-blown sickle cell. Do you want your child to live with that kind of a life? Probably be cut short with all kind of pain. Do you want that? So... You know, love is not just about jumping into bed. Love is far more than that. It's what is in the overall best interest for the persons going into the marriage. Pastor Murphy, it is quite evident that as Christians, we're having lots of problems in our marriage relationship. What would you consider the basis for building an effective and strong marital relationship? The foundation of marriage really has to be God. I cannot, I, look, I, I, I preach in our church and I often would tell um, our congregation that when you see people who are not Christians married for 20, 30, 40 years, they ought to be given a trophy. And I say that quite deliberately uh, because we as Christians, we have all kinds of issues, all kinds of difficulties in our marriage. How in the world do two unsaved people make it for so long without any Christian faith? Um, I think that's a rebuke to us, but it also is a credit to those people uh, because they live in a different generation. They live in the age of commitment, and even though they may not have been Christians, they're living off the, the remnant and the residual um, uh, philosophies of the Christian faith, uh, such as permanence, uh, one person, etc., etc. So we're living in a different age, but I think the foundation, not I think, the foundation of marriage has to be God. You have to have two people who are really committed to God. I don't know how a marriage can succeed without two people really committed to God. Uh, because there are times in every marriage when everything just seems to fall to pieces. Nothing is going right. Love has left the bride's cheek, uh, thrown out the window. Um, you're faced with, with issues, communication, uh, sexual issues, um, um, so many uh, personal issues in terms of the personality clashes, uh, mannerisms, uh, idiosyncrasies that each person has got, um, small things that actually fracture the marriage. And at that time, when you can't see light from day, what happens is that if you are anchored to Christ and that person is anchored to Christ, during that stormy period, 
your storm is weathered because you're anchored. But without that anchor, you start to drift. So I think that is one of the, the, the key factors, the, the commitment of both persons uh, to Christ. The other thing is, I think that people need to uh, face reality. And the reality is that a lot of what uh, you imagine to be the perfect marriage doesn't exist. Uh, everyone that I know of uh, struggles in marriage because you're dealing with two sinners who, though redeemed, still have a sinful nature. And you're going to have problems. You're going to have issues. There's no question about that. The problem I find is that we see sometimes on television, these people who watch these things, I don't do it. They see homes that uh, everything is joyed, it's funny. Um, the children seem to be pleasant. The, the husband and wife seem to be going wild and dandy. <laughs> that's an illusion. That doesn't exist. Okay, the real world is not like that. And many, many times, that's the kind of image we project. That's what we want. L- marriage is tough, but um, it can be lived out in dependence upon God. And um, the other thing I would say is try to keep close to God. You and your partner, try to keep close to God. There's no relationship between a husband and wife um, that can just hold the people together without their relationship with God. Uh, you need that, that, that third core, as it were, that, that other, other dimension, as it were. Uh, the other thing I would say is that uh, read some good Christian books. You know, people that they don't read, uh, that's one of, you go to the bookstore and you find that you hardly see anybody in the bookstore, the Christian bookstore. People don't read. They don't, and when they read, they want something short and, and, and cheap and, and trashy and quick. They want quick solutions. But uh, again, you, if you want something in depth, it's going to require some kind of a book um, that the guy give you substance and not just give you three ideas or four ideas that you run with. And then the other thing is real counseling. One of the great tragedies uh, is that a lot of people go into marriage and there was no premarital counseling. Uh, they were totally unprepared. They weren't told about the hazards of marriage. They weren't told about the complexities of it, the interpersonal problems. Uh, they never learned about in-laws and uh, sexual issues, communication issues, uh, uh, financial responsibilities, how you do a budget, how, how how you handle your income. So by the time they're going to the marriage and they haven't dealt with any of these matters, then they just thought that by going to a, a, a church, putting on a, a, a gong and a, and a suit and putting a ring on their finger, presto, they'll marry forever, happily ever after. That's an illusion. Then they're going to the marriage and we're not prepared for it. If I was the government of Antigua, any government in the world, nobody can get married unless they had premarital counseling. Absolutely nobody would be given a license or allowed to be married without premarital counseling. It would be a ma- just like you have to do a test to do uh, to get a license to drive a car. I believe that something needs to be done because if you're really interested in saving marriages, we've got to understand we've got to prepare people for marriage. The mindset today is not like it used to be. In my generation, people got married understanding it was permanent. It was a total commitment to... That's not the mindset today. The mindset today is, I'll go into this thing, if it doesn't work, I jettison it, and I can always get remarried. That's the mindset. And as a result, consequently, marriages have a very um, short expiry date on them today. And, And that needs to change. But it can only change if the church, for example 
refuse to marry people who don't get premarital counseling. Okay, Pastor, we have a WhatsApp message sure. here. Would you marry a couple who can't have children, or would you suggest a couple who can't have children not get married? Marriage is for children, and I would I would counsel the person to reevaluate that. But again, if it is discovered that they can't have children for whatever reason and, and, and they feel that they should go into the marriage, I'm not going to get into that. That's between them and God. But generally speaking, uh, if I was a, a person um, counseling a couple like that who said, Pastor, we've been to the doctor and it is clear that his sperm conk or something is wrong with my ova or my fallopian tube or whatever it is, my, my wound, uh, we can't have children, what would you advise? My advice would be, I wouldn't recommend that you go in that direction. Pastor Murphy, we are almost out of time. We have a listener here from Nevis who would like to ask a question. Hello, good evening. Good evening. Hello. Good evening. Have a question? Yes, um, I would like to make two references in to Leviticus. Two chapters in Leviticus have a lot to do with sex and sexuality. And those two chapters are chapter 18 and chapter 20. Okay. Is that the, okay. About, about, is that the one? What's, what's it, what it says there um, right off the bat? Well, it talk about who to have sex with, who not to have sex with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm familiar with the passages. It, it actually warns against um, incest. It warns against um, not sleeping with a man. As you sleep with a, a woman, uh, two men, etc. It also speaks against That's bestiality. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, the, listen, sir. There's no question about it that same-sex marriage is wrong. Uh, homosexuality is wrong, um, lesbianism is wrong. We as Christians don't, that, that debate is over for the Christian. The problem is that the church is now yielding uh, to that, that position and accepting it as normal. It's abnormal, it's against nature, God condemns it, God abominates it, and the church does a great disservice to the brethren to actually tolerate it and uh, to endorse it. Hello, Carla. Okay, thanks for calling. Okay, we have now come to the end of our program for tonight. It was a pleasure having you on the program. I do trust that you have received some good instructions from the answers that were given. And we'd like to invite you to tune in again next week, God's willing, when we'll be back with another edition of That's Choose. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth. Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kHz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.